very pleased to be joined today on 14th and G by our founding partners, Republican Bruce Melman and Democrat David Castagnetti, the original odd couple, uh, here to talk today, continuing our COVID policy series uh, with a focus on trade and what the virus crisis means uh, for policy in the trade in the trade arena. You know, Bruce, I'll uh, I'll start with you just in terms of it's always good to sort of set the table where we were going into this. The trade conversation uh, with China and supply chains, the new NAFTA, USMCA and tariffs, what it was doing to the economy. What, what was the status of U.S. trade policy going into the crisis and what's been upended and what's been reinforced? Well, thanks for having us back on, Dean. Uh, the pre-existing condition of the patient was fraught. And we wrote about this some in the uh, analysis we did six months ago on deglobalization. Uh, but after the Cold War ended, we had a two-decade run of hyper-globalization. And it wasn't just U.S. trade policy. It was all around the world uh, where we saw historic levels of connection. That's when the EU was born. That's when NAFTA got passed. You saw meaningful reforms out of India and out of China. The former Soviet Union integrated with the West. Uh, and there were extraordinary benefits, particularly for the world's global poor. But what we also saw, and we saw, we felt this politically, is a lot of America's middle class felt they were being hollowed out, felt that trade agreements, particularly with China, were, were causing American jobs to get sent abroad. We saw thereafter for the last decade, more or less since the great collapse, the great financial collapse, we've seen a lot of pushback against trade against multilateral systems, a belief that America is uh, no longer getting more than we're giving or that the benefits are too narrowly awarded to the to the elite global few and the pain is shared too broadly by the by the many. And that led to populism in the United States, uh, it, populism uh, in many countries in the EU and all around the world. We were seeing nationalist rise, suggesting globalism and globalization had gone too far. That's where we start the global pandemic. Dean, a couple of things I would just pick up on Bruce's comments. I mean, I think to, to especially to a lot of voters, this is the origination of, of the lack of growth of their family income, right? Income inequality is, is a number one issue. People focus on it. It is about the trade for most people. It's, it's because my job went to China. My job went to overseas, so my family income has not grown over the last 20 years or so. And you're seeing a mix of that within politics as well, right? You're seeing the Republican Party kind of have a redefinition of what trade is and what trade means going forward, as well as the Democrats kind of trying to figure out, are they part of the Bill Clinton trade agenda or part of the Bernie Sanders trade agenda. Casto, I think you nailed it there with China. So much of the focus in the trade debate uh, has focused on China, and now they're blamed for COVID. Too much of our critical manufacturing in uh, personal protective equipment and ventilators is found to be based in China. And the, you know, the, the story is that they take advantage of the United States. Our trade deficits with China are too high. I mean, these are all Donald Trump talking points from the 90s. 
isn't this uh, hasn't COVID exposed or, or, or I should say hasn't COVID reinforced, if not outright vindicated the Trump case against China that he spent decades making, ran on as president and has executed in his uh, administration's agenda? I'm not sure it's just directly related to the president theme. So today I was looking at a Pew poll. Pew says that 90 percent of the American public sees China as a major threat. I think this is is beyond the president. China has become a, a major threat in our economy. It has become an amazing, a, a major threat in military. Uh, we've taken a look differently at companies like Huawei, and are they part of the extension of just the Chinese government itself? There have been a number of cyber attacks uh, that potentially have come from the Chinese as well. So I think there's a lot of moving pieces to who China is, what are they about, do they help grow our economy, are they a real hindrance, and more importantly, are they a geopolitical threat to us uh, moving forward? You know, Dean, I, I, it's interesting the way you frame that. Without a doubt, we're seeing on a bipartisan basis, as David described, paranoia about China, concern about U.S.-China relations. It's worrisome. It's a new red scare that may be uh, legitimate, but almost out of proportion to reality. But I don't know that the while I think the, the global pandemic, which started in China, is probably going to make things worse and going to accelerate the decoupling of our and China's economies. Ironically, I would argue that it's the trade wars in a lot of ways that allowed the pandemic to be as uh, dangerous as it was. And were U.S.-China relations uh, warmer and stronger going into it, uh, we might have seen uh, many things. The U.S. had pulled some uh, some embedded CDC staff who had previously worked at China CDC. Reuters reported we reported fo- we we pulled folks in September October of 2019. And if you think about it, that's exactly when it, we would have wished we had those sort of experts. And after Ebola, the U.S. and China, along with the WHO World Health Organization, began some multilateral partnerships on on preparedness for global pandemics, and they started to fray as we saw the U.S.-China trade war, which had other issues, increase in friction. And as a result, things that I think both countries would say, well, that's that's legitimate. But since we're fighting, we're going to stop doing positive things. So when all said and done, the outcome is going to be worse for U.S.-China relations. And the irony is if U.S.-China relations had been warmer, uh, while a lot of the economic concerns would persist, we might have uh, had uh, better cooperation and therefore less of, 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 the, uh, of the global reach that this thing found. I think on that, Dean, too, just I think no matter who the next president is or who the next Congress is, you know, th- there's a need for some kind of political victory over China to help put the American public in a, in a better position vis-a-vis China as well. Well, do we know enough at this point if we're, Castro, if we're accelerating this decoupling, if we even enter into a, a true Cold War with the Chinese, all of what that means for the decoupling of trade, what sectors might be most at risk from that? And are there are there sectors of the American economy that might benefit from this uh 
from this new status of trade? Well, I, certainly, I think the the ones who may benefit are, are, are many of the defense companies that are around. I think there's a heightened military issue that the public feels and policymakers feel, especially with China's expansion in the South, South China Sea. I think that's a, a, a an interesting place. I, I think manufacturing uh, onto its own, what other countries can potentially manufacture many of the products that we use? And does that help potentially grow the tech industry in places like Vietnam or further grow it in places like Malaysia as a possibility? As, as we look at Huawei, clearly policymakers see Huawei as an extension of Chinese government. And does that potentially help many of our uh, chip providers or not because they, they're not allowed to do business with the United States government or potentially some of our other allies? I, you know, they, I, I think your question is very good. There's always a mix of kind of winners and losers moving forward, but it's certainly going to be a, a redefinition. And as Bruce mentioned earlier, in terms of the deglobalization, what does that mean for supply chains uh, moving ahead? Yeah, you know, I might add those who try to zero sum trade always fail. And the idea that more trade with China is either good or bad is 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 oversimplifying things. So, for example, uh, if you take even take something we know very well, the personal computer industry, personal computers way back when were all made in the United States. They globalized the supply chain and they were able to start producing higher volume at lower cost. Now, the bad news is if you simply measure well, how many of those were made here versus made somewhere else, it looks like America is losing. The flip side is if you say, all right, now that computers are far more affordable, who does that benefit? And the answer is literally the rest of our economy. It helps enable a software industry. It helps enable a, a industry based upon creating apps for mobile phones. Uh, it improves design. So when we've lost some elements of manufacturing, everybody else can gain. And it's a trade-off. You know, you see with things such as steel. I mean, we need the capacity to make steel as a national as a national um, uh, industrial base. At the same time, the more expensive steel is, the harder it's going to be to build buildings, the harder it's going to be to build cars, or they're more aluminum these days. Um, so trade is very complicated. It feels to me the challenge was less about whether we got too globalized or whether we had specific countries that we shouldn't have partnered with, and more that we had a, uh, a zero, we had a winner-take-all approach so that the gains were very concentrated and the pain was broadly spread out. And when that persists, you end up with populism and political pushback. And that's been the core problem with trade is that we didn't make everybody benefit from it. It benefited too few and too narrow a slice. Well, Bruce, that begs the question, uh, if the COVID crisis is reordering our trade relationships in a very real way, do, do we have new partners in trade, new allies? Does this crisis reorder global decks, uh, so to speak, on trade? So I think what you're describing is at least the second term Obama agenda, which was the so-called pivot to Asia. And the idea was let's reestablish the uh, Western IP protecting labor and environmental standards based 
multilateral approach where we would link arms with Japan and Australia and Mexico and Canada and a lot of the folks in the EU by all uniting together, we would create far more, the theory was far more pressure on China uh, to come around to more internationally accepted uh, rules and to take far less of a China 2025 approach to seeking individualized dominance. But that's not the approach the administration has taken in the, in the first three years. It's been far more of a fight everybody, you know, and solve all trade injustices or battles at the same time. And while any individual one of them, Airbus, was absolutely unfairly subsidizing or unfairly subsidized by uh, nations in Europe. So, sure, you want to take that one on. And, and you could highlight things in Canada or Mexico. We had complaints at many places around the world. But what we haven't done is we haven't uh, developed a, a strategy against China where it's us and a bunch of allies united, linked up and agreeing on a strategy and approach. Instead, we've sort of taken on all comers trying to uh, trying to fight a multi-front war on all problems that people have had with trade. Uh, I just don't know about the strategy there. I think one thing on that that I would pick up on, though, is I, I think Congress is paying attention to this more than they've had in the past, Dean, because of the, the, the way the president has handled kind of the, the geopolitical role of the United States. So if you're Congress, a couple of countries you're thinking about new agreements with, obviously we're going to have to do something with the United Kingdom, and uh, USTR note realizes that, and they've already been obviously in discussions and matter of fact i think formal discussions were supposed to start a week or two ago obviously they haven't we obviously know we we have to do a phase two agreement with the japanese there's always talk about what do we do with india uh, as well brazil is always one country that takes up a fair amount of congressional time in terms of we need a better uh, agreement with them but the other one that, that's new and I think interesting is how do we develop a relationship with Kenya and, and have a bilateral agreement with Kenya? Not because Kenya is such an economic powerhouse, but, but it does start to continue to help expand our bilateral agreements in Africa as well and kind of change that a little bit as a new dynamic. The last thing I, I, I would just mention, just as a reminder to folks, is uh, within the uh, next calendar year, we also have to uh, renegotiate TPA, and that's obviously a big negotiating tool for whoever the new president's going to be. So if I'm uh, if if I'm an American business person and with with some level of manufacturing, a multinational or some level of manufacturing overseas. This this sounds like this sounds like a bit of a retrenchment. Uh, American business has traditionally been a pretty forceful advocate for free trade. Is is that still the case? If if I'm a if I have multinational operations or overseas manufacturing, what do I need to what do I need to be doing right now? So that's a it's a it's a challenge because on the one hand you seem way outside the political mainstream and find few supporters if you're reading from the old hymnal, the only thing better than trade is more trade and free trade is great. Uh, I think there's now a bipartisan consensus uh, that the way we were doing uh, globalization and trade uh, wasn't lifting all boats, that the gains were indeed too narrowly concentrated. The question is, 
if you're a multinational, you still understand that you're going to serve more consumers, you're going to hire more Americans, you're going to create more innovative products if you remain globalized, if you can tap the smartest people around the world to help build and design your things. Uh, and if you can, the more people you can sell to, the better the price point for Americans. So we're seeing a lot of business leaders trying to reimagine how do you broaden the gains? How do you deal more stakeholders in? How do you consider more than than uh, more questions than simply did you uh, did you grow faster right now? Did you increase profits right now? Can you shave off a half a percent if you take the jobs in this city and move them to that country? And it feels number one that operationally business leaders have recognized that political risks have grown higher and that they need to think more long-term and deal more stakeholders in if they want to maintain uh, a global environment and not go to a pure national structure. So that's thought one. Thought two, you're seeing as business leaders lobby uh, greater flexibility in what they're seeking. It's no longer a, we need a, a, you know, pure free trade agreement with X, Y, or Z, but rather playing ball with those who are looking for stronger labor or environmental uh, or, uh, or, or digital standards. Uh, recognizing that you're going to need an uh, agreement that that has greater buy-in or else it's going to always be a target the way in some ways NAFTA always was. And then number three, our advice in our uh, in the analysis we put out called After COVID in uh, earlier April uh, was that we think business leaders are going to have to be the new tip of the spear to reprove the value of multilateralism. After the World War I, World War II disasters, you saw uh, nations realize that the way you're going to avoid massive new deaths is if the nations lead a new globalization. You had things like the United Nations born. Our fear is that right now the lesson that nations and politicians are going to take away uh, from the, the global pandemic is you need to be more nationalistic. You need a stronger national industrial base. You've got to protect your people first. And by contrast, it's going to be up to business leaders to and NGOs to build multilateral institutions that that try to address global challenges in a globally acceptable way, starting with pandemics, but quickly going to climate. Bruce is right on. And the only thing I would pick uh, pick up on a couple points. One is uh, on the economic part, right? Businesses are going to have to obviously have to rethink their supply chains and how they operate, not to mention kind of the buy America provisions, the buy China provisions that are existing in the world that they're operating in. So in order to make, uh, remain competitive, they're going to have to think about how to deal with those issues. On the political side, as, as we pointed out uh, a, a while ago in one of our analysis pieces, we're living in an age of disruption. And trade clearly is one of those areas where disruption has taken place. And as you look at disruption, one thing to think about on a much more mundane level to, to highlight Bruce's point is when you look at the recent passage of USMCA, you had the business community and the AFL-CIO supporting a trade agreement. I, I, you know, we've never really had a major labor union support a trade a, a trade agreement moving forward. So you're seeing a change in how to deal with these issues, and historically, the business community would always allow the president to do what he needs to do in order to reach a new agreement. Will that also continue? What is the role of the labor unions and the environmental groups 
moving forward as we structure these new trade agreements. There's some real interesting opportunities, I think, that are going to be put on the table again, no matter who the president is in 2021. Well, Castro, that's a great point. It's easy to forget uh, that uh, we are in a presidential election year. Joe Biden is going to be the Democratic nominee. He's a longstanding free trader. He's pro-NAFTA, pro-most uh, favored nation trading status for China. He was pro-TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, among a slew of other trade deals. Uh, the Trump campaign has already branded him Beijing Biden. Well, how is the trade issue going to impact uh, presidential politics, do you think? Yeah, I, I think if, if you look at it from the vice president's perspective, it's, it's it's not only has he been kind of pro many trade agreements, he's also been a real important figure in terms of our foreign policy, right? In terms of him as a member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, working his way up to chairman uh, of that committee. He has real relationships that exist throughout the world and has an understanding of how world leaders think about the United States, think about trade and and our role in that space. And he obviously has some people that he trusts and some people that I'm sure he doesn't necessarily trust all the time. But but I think it it's certainly in terms of the the political relationship, it, it, it's a it's a tightrope he's going to have to walk, right? Especially in the in the Midwest states where the the old Rust Belt, where you know trade has definitely been seen much more as a negative piece of the economy that the manufacturing economy that we live in, as well as uh, this most recent agreement with USMCA, where many of the Midwestern uh, House members agreed with what President Trump put forward. So there is definitely some issues he'll have to deal with. He'll have to take on the, the China issue. I'm sure a lot with the, the, the Senate leadership as well will be taking a real run at that. But I, you know, this is one area I feel the vice president's very comfortable and very knowledgeable in. Dean, you're right. It's clear as the Trump administration thinks about how they're going to get reelected. You know, there are three lanes in this one lane. It's it's PPE, but not what you think. One of them is pandemic. uh, One of them is personality. And one of them is the economy. And the Trump administration is obviously going to uh, assert that the president did everything right and was a great leader in the pandemic. That'll be a a, a dogfight. But you know, in that regard, the vice president, the former vice, or the former vice president can kind of just lay low and let the, the mixed reviews that the president gets be what they are on the economy. Uh, obviously, once upon a time, it was an unbelievable tailwind for the president. But going forward, I think the president has a pretty strong case he's going to try to make that. Who do you trust to be more likely to enable a real recovery? Me or a guy who was a Washington politician for 44 years? That'll be that fight. Uh, the third lane is the pol- is the personality lane, though, um, and we know the people who like the president, and he could go on Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody, and they still like him. We also know the people who don't like him. But Joe Biden hasn't been all that well defined, and part of his success to date has been, you know, Biden. Oh, right, wasn't that Obama, that fellow with Obama? So you start with a lot of people just brand him as. You know, oh, yeah, I like that guy. Oh, that guy, the Castagnetti's point. That guy's been thinking about foreign policy stuff and others for, for a while. I, I believe and I sort of fear as, as, an, as somebody who likes nice politics, I fear this is going to make swift boat 
uh, veterans for justice look like a uh, like Captain Kangaroo. We're about to see an unbelievable amount of attack going after Vice President Biden, going after his family. They'll hit him for being in town so long. They'll hit the family for what they'll allege is influence peddling. But then it's the China stuff, because that's what Americans are were upset about for trade and economic reasons before this. And now we know there was a virus that started there that they were dishonest about. Uh, and the dishonesty uh, helped enable it uh, it to spread faster than perhaps it might otherwise have. It feels to me that the Trump campaign and therefore Fox News and a lot of others are going to buy into this big time. And and uh, and the, the Biden equals Beijing is going to be ugly and persistent and a, a daily feature of politics for the next many months. So that that you're implying, Bruce, that the president is factually correct all the time and that uh, Biden won't be able to overcome this? Is that uh, is that what it is? Uh, I don't think that's what I said. <laughs> what I said, <laughs> I believe, is that uh, is that I think the Trump campaign's theory on how to navigate a fraught new environment uh, is to do all they can to discredit Joe Biden. And so rather than crediting him with leadership the way you described, I think they're more likely to suggest that he's been part of policies that put America at a disadvantage to China. Well, whether the COVID crisis has poured gasoline on the presidential election or the presidential election ignites the crisis, uh, it's going to be a Donnybrook either way. I uh, really appreciate Bruce Melman and David Castagnetti joining me today uh, to talk about the impact on trade. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Dave.